If you would, grab your Bibles real quick, turn to Malachi chapter 2. We'll read our text for this morning. So we're going to look at mainly 13 through 16, but I want to go back and kind of put 10 with it because that's what we're, where we were last week. All right, Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. So have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. So as I begin today, I want to first speak to just address this subject that we're going to talk about today, primarily marriage, but that we will also touch on uh, divorce. And so I want to just begin by saying something, because some of you likely as we go through this may feel a bit of weight um, during our study today because of something that has happened in your past in this area. Maybe even something you might be even contemplating right now. Or as a kid, you experienced the breakup of your family when you were younger. And aspects of that still kind of linger um, in your life. And so in a discussion of marriage and divorce, sometimes people can feel regret. They can feel shame and a number of different things. And one of the things I've found as a pastor is that in this area, if you have been divorced, is that some people have a hard time moving past that. And they almost, in a sense, carry around a stick with them. And this subject comes up or just other moments. And and there's an aspect of this where people kind of spiritually and emotionally kind of beat themselves up um, because a divorce has happened in in their life. And what I want to say to you today is this, is I want you to take that stick that you may have used for a number of years in your life And I want you to take it to the cross and I want you to lay it down there. If you have experienced this, you are not a second class person. You're not a less than person. This is something that has happened in your life. And God loves you and God cares for you. And God wants to to minister and to help you move on for that. Because there's always mercy and grace in a relationship with Him. So for those of you who are single in the room today. I hope you hear today God's ideal for marriage and that you would learn what God has to say about this blessing. And I want to stress blessing, 
Marriage is to be a blessing. It's not to be something that is a chore. Everybody goes through things, but God designed marriage to be a blessing. And so it is my hope today that you would hear God's heart in regard to that. And that you would hear God's standards for marriage. That they are beautiful, they are great. And if we would follow them, we would experience with a husband or a wife one day, the incredible blessing that comes from that. So we have been walking verse by verse through the last book of the Old Testament called Malachi. The nation of Judah had come back. They'd been back for a while. And it was a mess again. They had begun to kind of go their own way, fulfill their own fleshly appetites. And one of the areas in which trouble was there was in the area of the family. And so from Malachi 1.1 until we got to chapter 2 verse 9, God was dealing with Judah in regard to their relationship to Him. But as we come to Malachi 2 verse 10 through 16, God is going to deal with them and speak to them about their relationship with one another. And I know this to be true. I've been alive long enough to know this, that when our relationship with God is off, it affects our relationships with others. And so this, this worship aspect of relationship in Judah and the temple and their sacrifices was not right. And so God has been addressing that and calling them back and reminding them. If you will remember, His first statement in chapter 1 is, is He wanted to remind them that He loved them. And he wanted them to know that He still loved them in spite of what they were doing in response to Him. But as we come to... 2.10 and through 16, and particularly 13 through 16, we're going to see where they were really struggling. And so I want to remind us today that we must keep in mind that marriage belongs to God. This is His institution. He founded, up, founded it. He came up with this idea. We did not think it up. And because God did, we are to listen to and submit to the ways in which God defines marriage. For that is where the blessing is going to come in our lives. And again, because it is, it is His institution, there are great implications that follow by following what He says, and there are great implications that can come by not following what He has instructed. We live in a day and time where marriage has been redefined in so many different ways. And I just want to remind us that the culture will continue to redefine that. It will continue to put new labels on it, but we as God's people are not to follow the culture. And so I want to be up front as we begin today, because there will, there will likely be running through this. Well, what about this? This happened in my life. And so what about this? And so I want to, I want to deal with this just for a moment in case this is running through anybody's mind in the room today. So... There are provisions in the Bible in this area of divorce. There are three of them, I believe, that, that are uh, two of them really um, explicitly stated, and there's a third one. They all start with A. There is um, an adultery. If there is rampant adultery, um, and again, let me just say this, if these three things are present, it doesn't mean that somebody should get a divorce, but these are the ways in which it can happen. So Matthew 19.9 speaks about that, about marital um, unfaithfulness and adultery. 
1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, speaks about if one spouse just leaves and walks away from the marriage and doesn't come back and they have abandoned the marriage, then Paul writes there that there is, um, there is a way for that person to be divorced. And then there's a third one that I think the Scripture um, doesn't outright just speak about, but I think it's there. Um, a woman should not stay in a marriage if the man is going to beat her and beat her and beat her to where eventually the violence that is there is going to cost her her life, then I think she needs to get out of that situation and get to a place. And I think one of the things that the church ought to do in a situation like that is to be there for that woman who's in a situation and to love her and to care for her in a, in a, in a, in a very loving, biblical way. So outside of these three categories, and again, the first two, abandonment, and or an unbe- having an unbelieving spouse um, isn't a reason for someone to walk away from the marriage. So outside of these categories, there's not another way for us to say that we can just walk away from covenant. Sometimes the word abuse, I think, in today's culture around the church has been lessened to the place where people say, well, she's not a great cook. He's not as handsome as he used to be. Well, he used to be kinder, now he's not kind. That's not abuse or, or any other kind of thing. And so we, again, I just want to remind us that as God's people, we must be always biblical. And so we want to maintain what God says and hold the high standard. But there are reasons and ways in which divorce can come from a biblical perspective. One last thing before we get into the text this morning. It's not as popular in the church today to say what I'm about to say. Um, And I think the culture mindset, cultural mindset has drifted in to the church and has affected families. But I want to say it anyway this morning. And what I want to say simply is this. For the good of your kids and for the good of you, if there is not abuse and there is not abandonment and there is not adultery... I want to encourage you, even if there is some of that, if, even if there's been adultery, I want to encourage you to fight for your marriage. It is worth it to stay. It is worth it to, to work through those things, if possible, to get to a place. Because for the good of the kids and for the good of you and learning uh, and trusting in God in the midst of that, I believe that there is a blessing that can definitely come. So as a follower of Christ... When you and I look at the scripture, then the Bible has some very clear direction for us to understand this subject. I read a story about a woman who was getting her hair fixed. And she was listening to the two beauticians, I don't even know what you call them anymore, but we'll just call them beauticians, talking together. Uh, One of them was working on her and she was listening to them talk together. And the younger woman was trying to decide whether or not she should marry her boyfriend who was contemplating getting a ring, but also contemplating, her boyfriend was, getting a tattoo. The older beautician cautioned the younger one by saying, listen, marriage is one thing, but a tattoo is permanent. And so I want to flip the script today and just say this, is that yeah, a tattoo is permanent, but marriage should be also. And so that's why we should 
fight for this. So let me say this, and then we're going to get into the text. This is a church this morning. This is a place that believes in the Bible, believes in the glory of Jesus. And so as a church, we are not to be like the culture. The culture has a perspective on this. We are not the culture. We are a church. The need for the church in a culture is to be a voice of truth about every kind of area of life. And so if the church is just to be like the culture, then why come together this morning? For the culture is going to be the culture. So what I want to do today is I want to hold high God's standard because that's what we must do. And so God, as He talks here to Judah and He deals with the situation, all around the nation, there are all kinds of things that are falling apart. And so I want to remind us of where we were last week and look in verse 10 again. So God calls them and says, we've got one Father, one God has created us. And then he asks the question, then why, since this is the case, God's created us, why are we being faithless to one another in profaning the covenant of our fathers? And it said again in verse 11, Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah, here's the first issue he has, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which God loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign God. So this is where we were last week. If you remember, I told you that they had been back. Nehemiah had restored the walls around Jerusalem. He had gone back to Persia because he was the cupbearer of the king. And he had promised the king that he would return. So he's gone, and he's been gone for about nine years. And in the time that Nehemiah was gone, Ezra and Nehemiah had dealt with this marrying foreign women issue. Again, this is not a racial Skin color thing has nothing to do with that at all. The prohibition about marrying someone um, of another nation in another place had nothing to do with skin color. It had everything to do with they worshipped false gods. And God knew that if you marry them, they will turn your heart as what happened with Solomon. And so, so God, uh, Nehemiah has been gone. They've, they've rejected what God's standard is. And in nine years, many of the men had divorced their Jewish wives and had taken a Gentile wife that worshipped many other gods. And so idol worship had entered into the land. Women had been abandoned. Their children had been abandoned. And Nehemiah comes back and says, and he discovers this. He tells us this in Nehemiah 13, 23. Nehemiah says, in those days... I saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And listen to these words. Half of the children that had been born in the nine years that Nehemiah had been gone and who had divorced their Jewish wives, married another wife, a foreign wife, and are now worshiping idols and worshiping Yahweh. Nehemiah says these words. Half of those children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. Why is that so significant? It's significant because of this, because half of the kids that are now growing up in Judah 
could not understand the language in which the scripture had been written. So when it was read out loud, they had no idea what was there. If a scroll was put in front of them to read Jeremiah, they couldn't read it because now, because dad had discarded his first wife and married this new wife and there's brothers and sisters and the mom is at home and she's teaching them this foreign language and she's incorporating these gods into the home and this was the condition that was there. Deuteronomy 7 talked about that. The God's concern was this. He says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons for this reason. Again, this is not a a racial issue whatsoever. He says, Because of this, they will turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. So this is the context that is here. At the end of the Old Testament, and as we come to our first principle this morning in verse 13, is God's going to address what is happening and taking place in the land. So look with me in verse 13, and let's look at the first thing. And the first point just this morning is this, is that offerings coming to the temple don't square your account with God. And I'll talk in detail about that here in a moment. So look at 13. And the second thing you do... You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. So here's what's happening. God's first issue with them is if you remember, they are coming to the temple and they've been bringing sacrifices contrary to the standards in which animal sacrifices and what God had instructed them. The priests were accepting this. They were doing this. And they, weren't, and they weren't following what God designed. But now when we come to 10, God's dealing with their marriages and what they have done, what many of the men have done by discarding their Jewish wives and taking a foreign wife. So here's what's happening. Back in their home, in a village somewhere in Judah, you've got a woman who has come from another people group who has many, many gods and many idols, and she's got those inside the home. She's raising her children to know about these other gods and to speak the other language. The man is in the home. He, whatever the reason, to keep the peace, or he just is happy that he's got a new wife, whatever the reason is, he's okay with this. But he leaves the family at home, and he comes all the way into Jerusalem, and he comes to the temple to make a sacrifice of worship to the Lord. And God has instructed them, if you will do the sacrifices, I will bless you. And so the men have foreign wives raising children to worship foreign deities. Now coming to Jerusalem to worship the one God, discarding the teaching of the scripture. And they come to the temple and they're making sacrifices. And God says, I'm not accepting that sacrifice. Because of what you have done to forsake the wife of your youth. And now you have taken on a foreign wife who worshiped these other deities and your kids don't even speak the language in which the scripture is written. And so God says, I'm not going to accept that. But they are upset about this. They kind of think like this, like sometimes people today do. Well, God, I'm coming, I'm worshiping, I'm putting money in the offering box. I'm, I'm 
not cussing anymore. I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, I know my home's like this, but I'm not, I, I'm not. I got, I've come to the temple and I'm making the sacrifice exactly the way the scripture says. So God, what's the problem? And God says, well, the problem is what you have done back at home and what you have allowed to happen and what you have done with the wife of your youth. And just because you are bringing offerings doesn't square your account with me. Why doesn't it? Because here's what they were doing. They were ignoring a blatant issue in their life, a blatant issue of sin. And yet at the same time, they are upset with God. All of the sacrifices that were taking place in the temple were just being done with external rituals. Did you know, I know you're smart, did you know that you could have sung every word a while ago and even lifted your hands in worship and done it externally and not from your heart? It's easy in a room like this where it's safe to play the game, to pretend, and to fake it. We know the lingo. We know what you're supposed to do. We know when the song gets to the big, louder thing, we do this. Or, or we, we're not a big moving church. But, you know, if you were to move, you move at this situation. So I want to remind us that back then and today, people come to worship just to do external things. I came today, and I hope you did too, that my heart, that at times is dark and is in desperate need of Jesus, would connect with Him today. That He would do a work in my heart today through His Holy Spirit. That's why I came, and I, and I need Him to do that work. But here in Judah, this is not what is happening and taking place. God wanted obedience, but the men had discarded their first marriage. So you've got wives and abandoned kids all over Judah. And you've got men who are allowing idol worship in their home and their kids to not learn the language, to read the Scripture and to know the Scripture and to be taught the Scripture. And they're coming into Jerusalem just acting like, I can do this. God doesn't really care about that. As long as I'm doing the sacrifices, then this squares everything up with God. And that can never be the case if there is not repentance. Listen to what Isaiah said to Israel. This is Isaiah 1, 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who is required of you of this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity in solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. So they're coming, and I'm going to, uh, I don't see them. Yeah, here. I'm going to do something real fast, illustrate here. So here was, here's what was happening. So they're disobeying God in an, on a number of fronts, and particularly in regard to the context with the family, and they are coming 
to the temple and God's not blessing. He's not been blessing for years now. He's been rejecting their offerings. And they come. Some of you, this will bother because you shouldn't waste things. And they are coming to the temple, falling down on the altar, weeping and crying and weeping and crying and moaning, going, God, what's the problem? Where's the blessings? And God says, here's the issue. I told you I want to pour out blessings upon you, but it's going to come with obedience. And you are living in disobedience, and now you're coming and throwing yourself on the altar, and you're covering it with tears, with weeping and groaning, because they had come to the conclusion, and this is the conclusion that they had come to, they knew God was no longer accepting their offerings. And yet, you know what they did? Nothing. No change. They just kept coming and going, having a pity party. You ever had a pity party? People have pity parties. You ever been around people who know how to use manipulative tears? They know how to cry to get what they want, and they have manipulative tears to do that. But the problem is, is they come to God's altar and they pour themselves out on the altar and they're weeping and wiping their eyes and they're crying out to Him and God's saying, I don't accept this and I will not accept this. They think that as they can fake it out with everybody else and they can manipulate others, that they can manipulate God. But you can't manipulate God. God's perfect in every bit of His wisdom, in every bit of His understanding, in every bit of what He sees. And so they're coming to the altar, not bringing true offerings, just bringing trash offerings to God. And they were good at at putting out the production to make sure everything looked right and it was authentic, but their heart wasn't in it. And they could fool everybody else with their tears, but they couldn't feel God. And so God has criticism of what they are doing and He calls them out precisely He knows what is going on and he's not going to accept what they are doing. This is the picture of somebody in modern times who can weep at a sermon, who can cry, who can shout out, who can give lip service that they are concerned about sin and the nation, but they're never willing to take a sobering account of their own lives. But they can speak it. They know how to move and act it and do it externally. And the issue isn't that it's wrong to have tears. It's good to have tears in a worship service. It is good to be moved by the power of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God to broken people. But the problem was this. For a thousand years now, for the most part, they had not followed God's standard. Off and on throughout their history, they had divorced their Jewish wives and taken foreign wives And it had caused such a problem with them. And so here they are, weeping again at God's altar, wondering, what's the problem, God? Aren't my tears enough for you to move you to bring the blessings again? And the issue is this, is that they were not weeping over sin. They were weeping over the fact that they weren't getting stuff. They want stuff. I want big, big crops. I want my animals to be fruitful and multiply. But they weren't willing to do what was necessary for that blessing to come to their life. Because they think, well, if I just do 
the external stuff, then this will square my account with God. Well, that brings us to 14. And God says, well, here, let me tell you why I'm not accepting your offerings. So they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna ask a question back to him. So verse 14 says, but you say, why does he not? And God says, because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. They don't have any idea that God's got a problem, again, shocking, that God's got a problem with what they've been doing with their marriages. They have no clue that that's the issue. So God says, well, okay, since you don't have a clue, let me tell you, let me clue you in. Here's the issue. You have forsaken the wife of your youth, and you've been faithless to her, though she was to be your companion by covenant for the rest of your days. So let me tell you what else was happening at the altar in Jerusalem. You've got women and children, and mainly moms, coming to the altar, and guess what they're doing at the altar? They're weeping. Because back in the day, back then, because of the way women were wrongly seen and treated, when a man divorced his wife, he left her destitute. So all over Judah now, you've got single homes, and this is not a negative statement about single homes. If you are a single mom in this room today, and you are pouring your life into your kids, God knows. God knows. I've seen God work in single-parent homes. But God's design is, if, if possible, that there'd be a mom and a dad in the home. But all over Judah now, you've got single parent homes of women who have been abandoned by their husband. And they don't have money. They're trying to figure out how do they take care of their kids. And yet the men are coming and they are worshiping and thinking, God's going to accept my offering as long as I do the offering. The Mosaic Law had forbidden what they had done. And the Lord, I know this, strongly regards the tears of the broken and the oppressed. Not the sacrifices of prideful oppressors who disregard the sanctity of marriage. And in this text, and I believe it's, it's a little more popular in our, in our current culture for the women to be the drivers of divorce, but it's still for the most part men. And I think men are the leaders. They're not domineering and they're to be servants and they are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. But we still have a man issue, and even in the church, of men not doing what God has called men to do. And all over Judah, they have the law. They've had centuries of knowing what God has called marriage to be and to look like, and they have just discarded it once again. And you've got women coming to the temple, and they're crying out, God, what do we do? We have been abandoned and God always steps in and he's a faithful father in those moments but God says this is the issue this is why I'm not accepting your offering and they're like why God 
We're doing all the things you said to do. But God says, no, you're really not because you're not dealing with your sinful heart. And the issue became this, that the text says here, but you say, why does God not accept this? And the reason was because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. So let me talk about this for a moment. So back in the day when Malachi's writing here, back in the day when Jesus was here, you didn't go down to the county court clerk's office and pay some money to get a marriage certificate. Um, families were intimately involved in, in contracts and things of this nature. So what you would do is you would go to the city gate, and who was at the city gate of all the cities? The elders were. So the old men of the city were there. They would hang out. They would talk. People would go. Um, if, if there was ever a contract, if somebody sold a piece of land to somebody else, they would go to the city gate. They would meet with the elder or elders, and there would be witnesses of the transaction. Okay, I'm agreeing to sell my property for this amount of money, and you have this amount of time to pay this. This is how much the land is. This is how much the land covers. And so there was a witness that was there to this. So later, if somebody came back and said, hey, um, this guy, we, we made this agreement together, and and he agreed to pay this much, but, he's, but he hadn't paid it all. And he says he's done, everything's square. And so I've come back to you. You're the witness of this contract and dispute here. And I want you to speak into this. And so the elders would say, uh, no, that's not what the terms were. Um, you told him this, and he has paid everything that he's supposed to pay you. Or the elder would say, hey, you haven't paid what you're supposed to pay, and you need to make sure that you take care of this. And so they served as a witness. Now watch this. Fascinating. This is where this text is going to get very personal right now. So God says to the men in Judah who have discarded their wife of their youth, they've taken on a Gentile wife who worships another God. God says this, here's my issue. Here's why I am not accepting your offerings anymore is because when you made that vow to the wife of your youth, guess what? I was the witness to that. You said those words out loud, not just to your spouse, but I was present there. I was there. You said them to me. I'm the elder. I'm the witness who heard what you said to the wife of your youth. So on June 11th, 1988... I was looking really good in my tux. I wore a flat top haircut. I looked awesome. Some of you are like, what's a flat top haircut? Google it, kids, when you get home. Nobody has them anymore, but I had a flat top. And I stood. My grandfather officiated our wedding ceremony. And Pam and I stood on a stage. We took hands. We looked in each other's eyes. We exchanged rings. We said words to one another. And we said not just words to one another, but there was a whole group of people in the room that loved us and cared about us. And we said these words to them. And most importantly, we said them to who? To God. And so God says, I I, I want to remind you of this, that you've discarded the wife of your youth and and at that original ceremony, I was present when you vowed to me that you would love her for the rest of your days. 
and you just discarded her for your own selfish pleasure, sexual pleasure, whatever the case may have been, to get your new younger Gentile version wife, and you have abandoned the vow that you made, and I was witness to what you said. So if you're going to come to my temple and just pretend like you can make sacrifices, and I'm just going to be okay with that, when I was a witness to the promise that you made, and all over the Judah, again, the culture was falling apart. I, I, I think I'll say this right. I think I'll say this right. I think the church is, well, how do, well, it's not right or wrong. Do you know why churches are strong? Because families are strong. You know why churches are weak? When the family is weak. And the family becomes strong inside of a church when the scripture guides and drives the marriages and the families. And so now you've got in Judah, and this is not the case. Half of the kids in nine years don't speak the language anymore because the man decided for a selfish reason to just forget about the wife of his youth. And so God says, I've got an issue with that. You have rejected the covenant of marriage. And he says two things. You've been, three things. You've been faithless to her. And then he says, she should have been this to you and you should see this. She was to be your companion and you were to be uniquely tied in covenant. So this word companionship that's there in verse 14 is a Hebrew word that means your partner. To be joined, to be coupled with to have fellowship with, one who accompanies another. The Hebrew root word comes from a word that means to knit something together and join it together. Men in the room today, men who aren't married today, you need to understand this. Your wife is not your maid. Be a grown man and pick up your stuff. Start now as a teenager. If you're a single adult and you've got a trashy room, Clean it up. You're going to invite one girl over one day and she's going to walk in there and go, ooh, do I want this the rest of my life? She is not your maid. She is not your cook. But she is to be your faithful companion that begins in your youth. The wife is not to be seen as the man's servant, but as his companion. Wives, young ladies... The husband is not to be seen in an adversarial light. I've got to try to control him and tell him what to do and et cetera, et cetera. But he is to be seen as a friend in whom delight is what is most present in the relationship. So God says, I'm not accepting your offerings because you've rejected the covenant and you've forsaken the wife of your youth because she was to be your companion. And she was to be your companion for the rest of your days by covenant. This word covenant means a treaty, an agreement between two parties. Back in the day, they would do this. When they would be betrothed together and they they would get married, they they would exchange this thing by passing two pieces of meat one to another. That sounds exciting. How'd you like a piece of meat instead of a ring? So they would pass two pieces of flesh together saying something like this. 
May it happen to me what has happened to this animal if I break this covenant. And they would say that to one another. And blessings come in marriage when it's followed rightly and upon God's ways, but there are consequences if it is not followed. And I believe with all my heart that we are always building on sand or we are always building on the rock. There's not another option in between that. And so God was the witness. One more thing before we move on to point three. When we look at what was God's original design that's really important to talk about. In Malachi 2.10 through verse 16, God uses the word faithless five times. Five times. That's the theme of Malachi 2.10 through 2.16. They were being faithless with one another. And it's really important for us to see that how important this relationship and this commitment to one another is important. You know, our culture doesn't like to use the word faithless in around marriage and divorce. We like to use words like irreconcilable differences, incompatible, irretrievable breakdown. That's the new language that's being used now. But I just want to remind us this morning that God in the Bible here in Malachi 2 calls it faithlessness. So when I committed my heart to Pam and our lives together and she to me, we meant it. Our intention was all the way to death. And there's been moments of near death along the way, right? If you've been there, marriage is hard. There's not anything. Raising children is really, really hard. But being married to a woman is hard, and, being, and a woman being married to a man, that's hard. It's one of the hardest things that you can do. And this spring, 2024, will be, if I can count right, 36 years. And this is becoming rarer and rarer in our day today for people to say that they've been together for decades. And I just, want to, I just want to remind you and I today that it's absolutely important to fight to stay together if you can. And so God calls them out by saying, you've been faithless. So now let's go to the third point, if you look with me in 15. Let's talk about God's original design and intention. Verse 15. Did he not make them one? With a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God was seeking? What was God seeking? In other words, well, godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. I've got to stress this. If you're taking notes this morning, please note this. Malachi 2.15, written at the very end of the Old Testament, some of the last words written correspond to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 about marriage, the original marriage between Adam and Eve. So they, they say the same idea and the same thing, and we are to see it this way. Both contexts, Malachi 2, Genesis 1 and 2, 
They are reinforce and affirm God's creative ordinance for marriage. Therefore, listen, our culture has changed, but for believers, nothing has changed since Genesis chapter 2. And this unique, beautiful picture about marriage that God does there. So let me give you five principles that are important. If you've been married, these are important to know. But if you're a parent and you've got little kids and and they're going to maybe get married one day or you've got teenagers or if you're a single adult in the room, these these are the things that God designs for a blessing in a marriage. Are y'all ready for them? Here's the first one. Marriage is not to be lived independently from God or, or away from God. So the text says in first part of 15, did he not make them one? God did the work to take two people and make them one in marriage. This is exactly what Genesis 2 talks about. This is exactly what Jesus reaffirmed about Genesis 2 in the New Testament. That God does the work of making two people with two separate DNAs to become one flesh uniquely connected with one another. And so since God formed the marriage and God designed it for oneness, therefore we are answerable to Him about it. It is not to be redefined in any kind of way. So when we vow to God and we vow to one another and we vow before others, God is involved in that marriage between the two believers. And for that reason, God must be seen as the key one, the most key one in a marriage. By the way, let me just say this. If you're 16 and you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you should date, not just as dating, you should date based and grounded in the principles of marriage. So in your dating relationship, your dating relationship should not be done independent of God. God's in the car with you. God's walking on the sidewalk with you. God's wherever it is you go in the movie theater. God is present. And so your dating and your marriage is not to be lived independently of God. Secondly, marriage is a God-ordained union. Second part of 15. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? God breathed life into Adam. And then as God fashioned Eve from Adam's rib, there was something unique where God poured his Spirit Listen to this. It's here in the text. God poured His Spirit into this unique union that's there. And Malachi 2.15 is saying that when Pam and I stood up at First Baptist Amarillo and we made vows with one another, God was present and He was pouring His Spirit into that covenant relationship. Marriage is a, not a contractual thing. It is a spiritual thing that's designed from God's heart. And He pours Himself when two believers come together into that unique union. So when that is broken, it is a grievous act. And pain comes. And the marriage covenant consists of the husband and wife 
and God. That's the design that's there. And so he gave a portion of his spirit in the forming of marriage. One wife lovingly given for one man as though God gave a portion of his heart in the marriage ceremony. And so in this, God's ideal purpose was that one man for one woman for a lifetime and he was deeply involved in the action. Here's the third thing. And what was God seeking? Godly offspring. What was the issue in Judah? Well, half the kids couldn't even speak the language anymore. Were the men producing godly offspring? No. The men were producing idol worshipers who had learned from their dad that it's okay just to walk away from your family and to not communicate with them anymore and to not care about them and spend time with them. You just get something new and you move on. The design of marriage is to produce godly offspring, children who walk with God. Many of the problems inside of Israel's history flow from the discarding of covenant marriage and this worship of other gods and kids growing up confused about who the Lord is and not knowing the stories of the Lord. What if, what if a couple loves the Lord and they can't have children? Well, they can adopt. They can become mentors of kids at a church who come from broken families or difficult places. There are all kinds of ways in which a couple who can't have kids can have kids and love on them. Here's the fourth one. Marriage is to be guarded spiritually. So God says to them there, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Guard yourselves in your spirit. This word guard in the Hebrew calls for an urgent, immediate action and watch something to preserve it. That means this. Husbands, your wife should know every password that you have on social media and your phone and should have access to that anytime she wants to take a look at it. If you are one, it should be that way. Guard yourselves in your marriage, in your spirit. They were always to be on guard for what might tear apart this relationship. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I thought about my marriage with Pam. I pursued her. She had a boyfriend, and I went after her. I didn't really care what he thought. probably wasn't the kindest thing. He was kind of a friend of mine, but I was smitten. And so Pam, weirdly... Not weirdly her, but weirdly situation. Worked in a place like Bell's. I remember Bell's and places like that, Sears, kind of a Sears kind of place in this mall. Inside the mall, one of her friend's moms had a lingerie shop. So on Thursday afternoons when I didn't have football practice in college, I went to the mall and just happened to always be by the lingerie section. Not because I was interested in that, but there was a redhead there that I was really interested in. 
One day the older lady there walked back and Pam wasn't there when I walked through and said, that weird guy's out there looking for you. So I pursued her. And of course I won. I won. We have walked through a miscarriage. We've been broke. I traded in my car one time and got a new car, and in two days that car was not my car. She had taken it. So I had to give up my car and I had to take the trashy car, and I'm still bitter over it today. (laughs) We've had five kids. We've been broke again. She had cancer. I had to shave her head on the back porch one day, which I think a man should never have to do, but sometimes you have to. We have had heartaches. We have had trials. And we have been together all these years because one night in June 11th, 1988, we meant what we said to one another. And sometimes in marriage, you have to go back to that moment because the moment right now is awful. Again, even after almost coming up on four decades of marriage, we have issues. I got angry, just as a point of honesty, on Friday night over something I shouldn't have. You think I would learn. But here's the reality. If you keep going back and you keep going back to the faithful vows that you have made to the wife of your youth, you will make it until death parts you. And so we are, in other words, this last thing is, marriage requires faithfulness to one another. And so he says, and so let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Let's go to the last one. The covering that marriage should be. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be, here it is, the fifth time, do not be faithless. So at the end of the Old Testament, divorce was becoming more and more of the normal routine, and the men just bought into what was the normal. And cultures rise and fall based on the condition of the family, which has a great impact upon the condition of the church. And this is why in our country today we are concerned about our nation. Let me give you a stat that's a unique stat you may have never thought of, But for the first time in the history of America, where 50 years ago people were having a lot of kids, people aren't having a lot of kids today. And for the first time in our history, kids in our nation today have more parents in their lives than parents have children because of divorce and remarriage. So again, kids have all of these adults in their lives that they call parents, but parents aren't having kids. And it's the first time in the history of our nation where this has happened 
and taken place. And so the Lord again here says, For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Here's what would happen in a Hebrew wedding. In the ceremony, the man would have a, a garment, and I just don't have any Hebrew clothing, so I couldn't bring it this morning. He would take out his, his outer garment, and he would walk over to his bride, and he would put his garment around her. And when he did that, he was saying to her, for the rest of your life, I'm committing that I am going to protect you. I'm going to surround myself with you, and I'm committed with you to you. It was his garment. He would put it around her. But if, I don't know if you noticed in the text there, it's no longer her garment anymore. It's become his garment again. And so, so the Lord says there, he covers his garment with violence. What does this mean? Well, in the union of marriage, two different people now become one. And when you rip that garment off, this oneness off, this commitment, you rip it off, it's painful. Some of you know about that. To rip apart what God has designed to be one. And God says that when this happens... This comes back now, this garment belongs to the man again where he had, he had given it to her to say, I'm committed to you, to take care of you, to protect you, and to be your warrior, and to be your servant. And now he rips it apart, and the oneness is broken and becomes his. And he does violence. Watch this. He does violence to himself. And he does violence to the family. Because let's just face it. Again, I'm just trying to hold up the ultimate ideal. I know this, this is not the case for everybody in the room, but this is God's ultimate design. Is that God wants a man and a woman to be married for the rest of their days and to fight through the issues and to remain committed to one another. There was a father crisis in Judah We have a father crisis today. So I want to close with this. If you will just give me a moment. Will you all give me a moment more? Who won't give me a moment more? (laughs) Yeah, you better not say that. You get in trouble. All right. So I want to ask this question. And Becca, I'm going to go to the very end now. That last part. So Friday night, Sydney Brown got married. Many of you know Sydney. Um, uh, I drove over to East Texas and uh, got to witness the wedding. It was beautiful. Um, what was said, what was done, it was, it was really, really amazing. Her name is Cindy, Sydney Bender now. And so, but what constitutes, this is really for the young ladies in the room this morning and guys, what constitutes what we should do at a wedding ceremony? And as a marriage begins at the wedding ceremony. And if I were to ask that question and try to get an answer for you, some would say, well, you need to be married in the church. You've got to have a pastor. Maybe scripture should be read. Uh, you need to do the Lord's Supper. Or you do the sand thing. You do the unity candle thing. And there's all kinds of things to do. You can do it indoor. You can do it outdoor. It could be formal, more casual. Um, do you have immediate honeymoon? Or do you wait for a while? And just all, all, all and all and all and all and on and on about all that kind of stuff. 
But as God speaks about marriage in the Scripture, and particularly what we just looked at this morning, He doesn't really talk about any specifics of the ceremony. He just emphasizes the word faithless. So when you begin to think about a wedding ceremony, I want to set forth to you that it ought to be put together around the idea of faithfulness. Since God's heart about this is that we would be faithful to one another. What's typical for marriage, though, is to come into it with a biblically aligned attitude where the heart is fully committed to being faithful. And to do that, something must take place on the inside where we commit to being faithful to the covenant and the things that are promised in Scripture as we enter into marriage. And so, what should be made up of a wedding ceremony? that begins a marriage. Here's the first one. Is that I believe that it should be affirmed over and over in the ceremony that marriage is to be seen as biblical because it is a covenant instituted by God. You see that in Genesis 1 and 2. You see that here in Malachi chapter 2. We are told it's biblical because it is a covenant made from one person to another and in front of faithful witnesses. So the ceremony should emphasize the specialness of the moment that a serious promise and commitment is being made between two people who are in love with one another. So think, I think language, whoever, whoever you choose to do your wedding one day, you need to say to them, will you please use words like covenant and promise and faithfulness. Secondly, marriage should be affirmed at the ceremony as one man and one woman who are leaving their family and becoming one flesh in the eyes of God. They become a new family. That means moms, when your daughter gets married, leave the new family alone. They are a family. And some people can handle that where they leave, and then some people just can't do it. And that's parents and kids. When you get married, students, your parents are going to have some thoughts about your new family and what y'all ought to be doing. And I just want to remind you, they love you, but you are a new family. And you follow what God wants biblically for your family. Genesis 2.24 teaches this in the very first marriage And Jesus affirms this in Matthew 19, that two people become one flesh. Thirdly, at the wedding ceremony, marriage should be affirmed as one man and one woman making a covenant to one another to be faithful, not unfaithful or faithless. How strange would it be to be at a wedding where people exchange vows and it just says something like this, I'm going to try to do my best to stay committed to you and faithful to you for the rest of my life. I'm going to do my best. Instead of people just saying, no, I will commit to this. We need in our nation today a call back 
to this biblical commitment. Faithfulness, faithfulness, faithfulness. <laughs> Lastly, marriage is to begin before faithful witnesses, before God, before family, and before faithful friends publicly. So hear this. A marriage is not to begin with a wedding that is done in secret. Where a man just walks up to a woman and says, we're married. And he just declares it. This is not seen anywhere in scripture. As weddings and marriages took place where there were witnesses of the marriage union. Giving affirmation of that relationship. So at a wedding ceremony with Christ followers... A reminder should always be given at that ceremony that when God's name is spoken out loud at a ceremony, this is biblical and it's it's a covenant relationship. It is to be grounded in faithfulness, not faithlessness. God becomes a witness of the union and the vows that are made. And we have become the same kind of mess that was present in our day that was present in Malachi's generation and when Jesus entered the world where a man could easily divorce his wife for any reason. If she didn't look good, she burnt the toast, whatever the case may be, he could just write her a certificate of divorce in front of witnesses. He could hand it to her and be done with it. And he could move on. But this is not what God has designed. And I believe that if those four will be present at a wedding ceremony that that's a great place to begin. That that's the great place to be there. And then have whatever you want to have in the wedding. Have it outdoors. Have it on top of a mountain. Have it on the lakeside. It doesn't have to be in a church. But just make sure that as it begins that it's understood this is to be biblical. About 1988, I think the year that Pam and I got married, I went and heard a guy speak named Robertson McQuilkin. I'd heard about him. He was a seminary professor, you know, or he's actually at that time, I think he was president of Columbia Bible College in the seminary there, and I'd heard he was amazing, so I went to this thing where he spoke, and it was amazing. I'm one who likes hearing, I like, I like hearing old, old pastors who've been in the game for a long time. There are some young ones, preachers, that are really, really good and are great to listen to, but give me an old person who's been preaching for 50 years, and they just have something to say because they've been through the war. And I was amazed as I sat there and listened to him, and then I found out this story. Many in the Christian world in 1990 were surprised when he resigned his position as president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary in order to care for his wife, Muriel. She had Alzheimer's. He was in his early 60s and could have served much longer. He was loved, very effective in what he did. His wife could no longer communicate in sentences. Even her phrases were often nonsensical. She needed around-the-clock care. And since she would only get worse, 
trusted, lifelong friends and godly friends urge McQuilkin to just put her in institution and continue his ministry. And in his journal, he wrote of the struggle. And he said these words. When the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness and in health till death do us part. This was no grim duty, he wrote, to which I was stoically resigned. However, it was only fair, for she had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn, and such a partner she was. And if I had to take care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. And I tell you today, again, I I just want to remind us, and I know I've gone a little long, and I think sometimes it's okay to. The church has got to get back to the biblical standard here to live what God has designed. So those of you in a marriage right now, and you're silently suffering, and you're thinking about, do I walk away from this? I want to tell you, don't. Don't walk away. I want to tell you to fight for it if you can. And sometimes marriages don't make it because of abandonment reasons where people are like, I'm done with this, and and they just leave. And it's not that you don't know where they are, but they're done, and it's over with, and there's nothing can be done about that. Fight until the papers are signed Be committed to doing what God has designed. And I tell you, God will honor that to fight for your marriages. And parents with children, do it for the sake of your kids. Men, do not, do not walk away from your families and rip the garment off and bring violence spiritually upon your children and upon that situation. And I hate when people say this. I hear it from time to time. Well, you know, kids are resilient. They'll get over it. Some of y'all are adults in this room and you're still still dealing with the pain. I've talked to you. You're dealing with the pain of a divorce. So yeah, kids are resilient. But I also just want to remind us as we finish that even if that pain is still here today, and you fought for your marriage, and it didn't go the way that you had prayed and you'd poured out and you'd fasted, I want to remind you today that though something has come upon you that you did not desire, that there is an everlasting God who is tender in His mercies and His grace to people who have been through that ripping of the oneness away. And so I want to remind you today if you're divorced, you are not a second-class citizen. You are not. You are not labeled. Just live godly now and be a pursuer of Him. And His tender love and His work will continue to fall upon your life. We all have issues. Some of our issues are we've got a divorce. 
Some of us have other issues that are just as devastating that we wrestle with that are a part of our past. And so extend grace, extend tenderness, extend love to one another. So this is God's heart and counsel about marriage. Isn't isn't it beautiful? The The way he shares that and gives that to us. Let's pray, okay? Let's pray.